Amen. Please be seated. It is good to see you this morning. It is good to be here. Uh, it's really good to be here. Let me begin by reintroducing myself. It seems like it's been a few weeks. My name is Adam. If you're joining us for the first time, I get to serve here at Eastside. But I spent the last few weeks, I took the last couple weeks off because... As a family, we just welcomed our second daughter, so I had the opportunity to spend some quality time in the middle of the night with my family, uh, some sleepless nights, and uh, it was a good time. It's been a good few weeks, but man, I am so thankful for those who filled in. Dr. Hardin preached for us a couple weeks ago. My One of my best friends, Pastor Andy from Real Life Christian Church, preached for us last week, and they just knocked it out of the park. I'm so thankful for the way that they served us through this preaching of God's Word, but man, I'm excited to be back. So let's open your Bibles, if you have them, to Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. It's near the beginning of your Bible. Uh, as you turn there, I want to wish all the moms a happy Mother's Day. If you are a mom, if you have a mom, uh, we are so thankful for our moms. Um, I don't know how we do it without moms. In fact, like a, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I got to watch my wife give birth. I actually didn't watch. I kind of stood at a safe distance, and I saw enough to know that if it weren't for women, the human race would have died out a long time ago. Like if it were up to men to carry on the human race, it would have been like a one-generation uh, science experiment. And um, we're going to look at the story today for Mother's Day. I just want to kind of give the, the end before we get there about a guy named Jephthah. He was one of the judges of Israel. We're going to kind of unpack his story in a minute. But you're going to be shocked to find out this is not a typical Mother's Day sermon because Jephthah, as he tries to lead God's people, ends up sacrificing his daughter. And as I was surveying the story, I realized the reason Jephthah did something so stupid to sacrifice his daughter is in the entire story, there was no mention of mom. Like, I don't know where she was. I don't know if she'd passed away, if she was on vacation. But when dad was home alone, he ended up sacrificing his daughter, which kind of is the point of the story. So stick with us. Judges chapter 11. We're going to make our way through the story relatively quickly. So if you have a Bible, if you want to grab one on the way into the worship space, if you can find it on your phone, I want to invite you to follow along because we are looking at a story of a man who led God's people. In fact, if you're joining us for the first time, we're the first time in a while. We've been in this study through the book of Judges, looking at the life and leadership of the judges that God gave to his people to lead his people so that they might know him. And as we look back through nearly 3,000 years of history, we're seeing how as leaders today, we can lead others to experience immeasurably more, more of God, more of his power, more of his presence in their lives. So Judges chapter 11, the story starts this way in verse 1. It says, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall, have, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. All right, so let's stop right there. It's three verses. And what an introduction. Like, can you imagine if your story was saved in the pages of God's word and that's the way your story started? Jephthah was a mighty warrior. Like, this is off to a great start. Yet his mom was a prostitute. His brothers hated him. He went out and kind of just raided people with a group of worthless guys. I mean, this is quite an introduction, isn't it? And we're seeing the same kind of story unfold with all the judges of Israel that when God calls someone to lead his people, he doesn't often call the most skilled person. And he certainly doesn't look for the people with the best circumstances. 
circumstances. He's often looking for people who are willing to do what God calls them to do. And so it is with Jephthah. There's really nothing about him as we start this story that from a a quick glance would make us think that he was going to be a great leader of God's people or that he in some way could save God's people. But those are the kind of people that God often calls. I mean, Jephthah's story was pretty rough as it gets started. I mean, he's not even welcome in his own home. Like, he had some circumstances. He, was, he came from some pretty tough circumstances that were beyond his control. Like, he couldn't control who his mother was. He had no say in that. He couldn't control who his father was or the kind of relationship that his parents had or didn't have. But from the very beginning, his brothers are trying to give him the boot out of his house. And so Jephthah's dealing with these kind of these difficult circumstances. And we look at that and we see something pretty significant about the way that God works. That when God calls us, you think, like, we read these stories about these judges, and we think, like, those were great stories preserved for us in the pages of God's word. But, like, if God knew my story, or if the church knew my story, we wouldn't be spending much time talking about how I am supposed to lead others, because I'm just trying to figure out how to lead my own life. But Jephthah was in a very similar situation. Like, there wasn't much about his story. He came from tough circumstances, but God used his circumstances to sharpen his skills and prepare him to lead others. I wonder, and it doesn't say this, I'm reading between the lines when it says Jephthah was a mighty warrior. How do you think Jephthah learned to be a mighty warrior? Maybe he grew up fighting his brothers for everything he found, right? Like, they didn't like him. They didn't want him in the home. I'm guessing they weren't quick to share with him. And so Jephthah learned at home in these difficult circumstances how he could be a mighty warrior. So someday, when God needed a mighty warrior to lead his people, people Jephthah would be ready. And then even in his, even in his uh, early adult years, as Jephthah is kicked out of his house, he flees to the land of Tob in a group of worthless fellows, a bunch of, a band of robbers, it would be, could be translated, gathered around him and went out with him. And Jephthah, even though he's pretty far from God at this point, he's not living a very holy life, he's raiding villages and, and stealing from people and leading others to do the same, he's developing his leadership skills. So not every part of his story is something we want to emulate, but as we look at a story, more than even the story of Jephthah, we see something significant about God, that when God calls us to lead, it's not always because of our skills, and it's certainly not because of our circumstances, but because of his calling. It goes on, it says this, it says, after a time, so after a time while Jephthah was away, while he was uh, leading this band of robbers, it says, after a time, the Ammonites, who were enemies of God's people, made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, so the tribe that Jephthah came from, went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. All right. And so isn't it interesting that this mighty warrior who's got leadership skills isn't asked to lead until something went wrong? Have you ever noticed that? We've been in this like 10-week series through the book of Judges, and we've been talking about how we can lead others to experience more of God, more of his power, more of his presence, immeasurably more of who God is in their life and watch him work through their life. And maybe you've taken it to heart and you started praying for opportunities to lead and you've picked some people, maybe it's kids at home or neighbors or friends or coworkers, and you're intentionally putting yourself in position to lead them. And you're thinking, man, if God can use someone like Gideon, or if God can use someone like Jephthah, or God can use someone like Samson, 
and God can surely use someone like me. And you're putting yourself out there and you're trying to lead and you can't even get your friends and family to follow you to walk more closely with God. Have you ever felt like that? It seems to me one of the things I've learned is that people don't look for leaders until something goes wrong. And so you know what I've started doing? I've started praying for things to go wrong. Like, if you think things are going wrong in your life and you think, man, Adam's been trying to lead me. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm praying for it. No, maybe. You never know. But I do pray that the Holy Spirit would go before me to, to soften the soil of people's heart through whatever method, whether through blessing them or through crushing them, whatever it takes, so that we can lead others to follow Jesus more closely. And here's the thing. I don't just do it for you. I do it for me as well. Every day I pray, God, help me see what you see and want what you want. Because I know me and left to myself, I'm not looking for God to lead me. Like left to my own selfish desires and selfish ambition, I want to accomplish at the end of my day what I set out to, what I set out to accomplish at the beginning of my day. But I've learned because I want, what I really want is what God wants. I've asked God, God, if it's going to take a hard day or an easy day, help me see what you see and what, what you want. Jephthah is there. He's, a, he's, a, he's from this, this tribe. He's, he's been in their midst. He was raised among them. He had leadership capability. He was trained as a warrior. And it wasn't until things got challenging that the elders, the leaders of their tribe, went looking for Jephthah. And so we're going to fast forward, but Jephthah kind of just kind of has this back and forth, just like I can imagine we would as well. When they come to him, he says, hey, wasn't I, did I grow up with you guys? And wasn't I willing to be part of your family? And you said you didn't want anything, want anything to do with me. Like, what, what makes you think I'm going to rush back to lead you? And they basically promise in the farm, if you come back and lead us to victory, then you will be the leader of this tribe. You will be elevated to the judge in position of our region. And so Jephthah agrees. And then we're going to fast forward to verse, verse 12. It says, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, who's, again, the king of the enemy of God's people, and said, what do you have against me? Which I have to think the king of Ammon thought, I don't even know who you are, but I'm reading the mail. So what do you have against me? That you have come to me to fight against my land. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peacefully. Israel came into the land like 300 years before this conversation took place. So this is an old grudge, but they're bitter nonetheless. Verse 14, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites. And I want you to follow along as I hear, as I read to you what Jephthah wrote. And he said to them, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And he begins to give a history lesson about Israel's journey into the promised land. Verse 17, Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then, verse 18, then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Eden and the land of Moab. And they arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and they camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz, and they fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, 
gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, the Amorites who inhabited the country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And, and uh, are you to take possession of them? Okay, now I know. Did you read that in your morning Bible study this morning? Probably not, because that's hard to read. I practiced it just so I wouldn't stumble through it, because there's a lot of information there. So why do we stop and spend some time reading it? Because I'm amazed, as I look back at the story of Jephthah, how well Jephthah knows the story of God leading his people into the promised land. Like, did you grow up in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, and maybe like some of the stories of God come to mind, and you realize like, man, I know a lot about who God is and how God works. I want you to kind of hold on to that for a moment, because that was Jephthah's story. Like, he didn't grow up in a perfect family situation, but somewhere along the way, he learned about how God led his people into the promised land. And when God was challenged, Jephthah, thinking through the Old Testament story and the Old Testament law, pushed back and said, this is who God is, and this is how God has been leading his people. This is where God established us. And by the way, King of Ammon, this wasn't even your land in the first place, but nonetheless, we are here because the God of the universe established us here as his his people. Jephthah had a pretty good working knowledge of all that God had done for them. We're going to fast forward to verse 29. It says, because he argues just a little bit more. Verse 29 says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Okay, I promise we're almost done with the names and peoples and places. But what we see is Jephthah knows the word of God. He knows the story of God. And here God gives Jephthah his spirit. And I think every time we turn the page in the scripture through the book of Judges and through the New Testament, what sets the people of God apart is when God bestows his spirit upon them. It is always, even in the Old Testament context, God giving his spirit to his people. That when we are leading others, we're literally just following the Holy Spirit. Like when we say, hey, we're challenging you as a follower of Jesus, as someone who calls East Side home, we are here, but individually and collectively to lead others to experience immeasurably more by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy, which is a really nice way of saying we're leading people to experience more of God's power and his presence by inviting them to do what God says. You don't have to figure out how to lead alone, that God gives his spirit. And as you follow the Holy Spirit, you lead others to do the same. Still today, it's the Holy Spirit who leads us as we lead others. So I know we've kind of gone through a lot of information. We've already covered a lot of ground, but here's what I want us to see. Jephthah didn't grow up in a great family situation. He didn't come from ideal circumstances. God used those difficult circumstances from his childhood to sharpen the skills that God gave him because he was preparing him someday to lead others to walk closely with God. Maybe you find yourself... Uh, uh, connecting with Jephthah in that part of the story. Like you you're didn't come from a great family. It's Mother's Day and you're thinking, man, I wish I had the kind of mom that all these other people seem to want to celebrate. Like that's not your story. Maybe there's some difficult circumstances and you're realizing as you look back, God has used those circumstances to shape you for the calling he set before you. And maybe it's like Jephthah, you know a lot about who God is and how God works. You grew up in church or vacation Bible school or Sunday school or somewhere along the way, someone gave you a children's Bible, or, or maybe in college you met the Lord and someone gave you a Bible and you just consumed as much of it, as fast of it as you could. 
where you had a family and you started reading the Bible, like you know who God is and how God works. And you know that when you follow God faithfully today, God gives you his spirit. So you're seeing like, man, there's a lot of Jephthah in me. And it seems like at this point, everything is just going to be up and to the right. Like Jephthah's come out of his difficult circumstances. Others have asked him to lead. He knows who God is. He knows what God has done in the past. He knows what God can do in the future. He knows that his Holy Spirit is upon him. And so what happens next? Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Okay, so Jephthah's praying, right? He's having a conversation with God. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, well, that's what God has called him to do, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Okay, I don't know about you, but this is when it gets kind of bizarre. Like, I know this is the Old Testament. As we kind of survey the pages of the Old Testament, there's some weird things set in this time in human history. But this is really weird. Jephthah says to God, I'm going to go do exactly what you've called me to do. You've given me an opportunity to fight the Ammonites so that God's people can live peaceably in the land where you have established them. So I'm going to do what you have called me to do. But just to kind of hedge my bets, um, if you do what you've already promised you will do, then I will offers a burnt offering, the first thing, whatever comes out my door. Now, I'm not only, I don't know about you guys, I'm not only uncomfortable about the burnt offering part. We'll get to that in a second. I'm uncomfortable with the leaving it up to chance. Anyone else? Like, I don't like to leave anything in my life up to chance. Jephthah doesn't say, like, when I get back, I'm going to offer the first goat from the sheep pen. He's just, like, kind of leaving it up. It's just this hasty vow. Hey, whatever comes out. Like, I know where we're going to lunch today after church, and I knew it before dinner yesterday. Like anyone else like that? Like I want to know what's coming and that might be a problem, but I don't like leaving anything up to chance. I don't want to stand here with all of these friends and like figure out, we end up somewhere terrible. I have no idea. So I don't like, Jephthah says, hey God, whenever I get back, if you will do what I, what you said you will do, then whatever comes out the door of my house first, that's what I'm going to offer as a burnt offering. And honestly, if we dig into the Hebrew and look at their context, that whatever should probably be translated whoever. It wasn't like Jephthah knew, it was, it's not like Jephthah was thinking that when I get home, my wife's cat is going to be the first thing out the door. Now I've been looking for a reason to get rid of this cat for years, and so I'm going to sacrifice the cat. We know that for several reasons, because we all know that cats are like the most selfish critter, right? They never come to greet you like the dog does. They sit inside, entitled, waiting for you to go greet them, right? That's how cats are. So also, they didn't keep animals in their homes. Like they weren't like us. Animals were outside. They were livestock. They were to be used. They weren't pets. So Jephthah, when he makes this vow, he is saying to God, whoever comes out the door of my house, I will offer that person as a burnt offering to the Lord. Why in the world would Jephthah, who knew God's word and was walking with the spirit of God, say something so foolish? I think Jephthah was trying to bargain with God. At the end of the day, he was using the ways of the world to get the attention of the God of heaven. Because in those days, this is how you would get the attention and please pagan gods. Like the god Molech. The bigger the ask of God, the bigger the sacrifice. And so it wasn't uncommon in the culture that surrounded Jephthah for them to offer their children or other people as sacrifice. 
Jephthah says, it's just this bizarre situation. Like, hey, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get God's favor. So what am I going to do? I'm going to offer God whatever or whoever comes out the door of my house. Why in the world? Would Jephthah think that God would want him to offer a sacrifice like this? Because a few hundred years before this moment, as God laid out the law for his people, he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 10. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Okay, so this was like a few hundred years before this moment. God knows us, doesn't he? He knows. He's telling his people as he's giving them the law. He's saying, hey, you're going to go into a land. And in that land, there are going to be some crazy people. And they're going to have some crazy ideas. And they're going to be offering their kids as sacrifices to try to appease some crazy idea about who God is or who their gods are. Don't even think about living life like those people. Don't, don't accept their practices. Don't adopt them. And when it comes to offer as sacrifices, do not consider your children as, an, as like an opportunity for sacrifice. And maybe he put that in there for the protection of kids. Like no matter how bad your kid is, God doesn't want you to kill them. You're going to meet some crazy people with crazy ideas. Don't even think about it. The question then is like, have you ever felt like you had to offer God something? Like had you had to offer God something so you could get God to do what you want? Like, have you ever made a bargain with God? Like, be honest. Some of you might be here today because somewhere along the way you bargain with God. God, if you'll just get me out of this situation, I'll never miss church more than once or twice a month, right? Like, God, I'll go to church more often than I will. And you're like, you're sticking to it. Like, you're miserable and you've tried every church in town and this one, you, you just stick. And so we're grateful you're here. Whatever it took to get you here, we'll take it. But I think often we do this. Like, I find myself at times thinking, like, maybe I could bargain with God. Like, if we put a little extra money in the offering plate, maybe God will respond more favorably to us. Or, you know, I don't know, if we attend more church more freely, whatever the situation is. Like, honestly, I don't mean this is like a shot at the Catholic Church. I think this is why people like the Catholic Church so much, because going, from what I hear, is so painful. And they think, like, if I don't enjoy church, God must be happy. Like, that's not how God works. Like, the more miserable you are doesn't make God more happy. Okay? We have a lot of recovering Catholics here. We're grateful you're here. We try to make it more comfortable for you than the priests do. But here's the thing, we cannot bribe God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, God lays out his character. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, which is a really cool way to say God is God. Like, he doesn't need you. You need him. He doesn't need anything from you. Everything you have is from him. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and what? Takes no bribe. So, like, you can't leverage church attendance though you should attend church. You can't leverage your generosity, though you should be generous. Like those things do not earn you favor with God. God is who God is. God wants good for his people and he's going to accomplish good through you whether you try to pay him off or not. Uh, you have nothing to offer God that God needs. So what does God want? God wants you. God wants me. God wants a relationship with his people. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. So often I think we look back at the Old Testament and we expect them to offer sacrifices because in some way it seems like that earns God's favor. But from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God just wants his people. 
Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 22 and 23 says this. God says, for in that day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So from the very beginning of his relationship with the nation of Israel, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. So when God is first giving the law, he's not trying to give instructions to get things from his people. You know, they have a sacrificial system. That's another sermon for someone else on another day. But he didn't say like, hey, when you come out, I want you to start offering sacrifices. It has their place. He says, but this command I gave them, obey my voice. And I love these words every time they're in scripture. And I will be your God and you shall be my people. What does God want from you? God wants you more than he wants anything from you. He wants you and he wants good for you and he wants to work through you. He says, and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. God wants good for his people. I'm not going to put it on the screen because we say it all the time and I know you get sick of hearing it, but in the New Testament, Jesus describes the kind of relationship he wants with his church. And in John chapter 10, verse 27, looking at all the flocks grazing on the, the, the hillside, he says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep, those who are part of my flock, they hear my voice. They listen to me. I know them. They're my people, and they follow me. It sounds very much like Jeremiah. If you uh, obey my voice, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Jephthah knew God's word. He had God's spirit upon him. And still, for some reason, he tried to strong arm God into bending to his will. And we look back 3,000 years from the safety of 3,000 years later, and we think Jephthah was such a dummy, right? And he was, and he was, and he's going to pay the price for it in just a minute. But before we're too quick to judge Jephthah, judge, whew, judge Jephthah and be critical of him, I think there's a very real danger that we wrestle with in our culture, and that is when we try to serve God under the influence of our culture. Like, I'm not one of those guys that wants to stand here and throw rocks at the culture. Like, I think they need someone to save them, and I think God put us here to lead others to experience more of him. So that's, a, that's the whole premise of the series. But what we can't do is try to serve God their way. And I don't mean that like, like uh, when we try to like, do relationships the culture's way, you know, and we think, like, how could I ever get married before I sleep with someone? It's like, because God said so. And it's just like for all of human history, it's worked better that way. Like those are the big sense. I'm talking about the other things that we let infiltrate our world when we don't even realize it. Things like gossip. Oh, well, gossip. Like that's not a, like that's a, that's a sin that we all can wrestle with because what the Bible would say, like what the culture would say is if you want peace in your church, then don't talk to people about the problems. What the Bible would say is when you have a problem with someone, what do you do? Do you go to the preacher? No, not my problem. It's your problem, right? You go to them first. And you'll be amazed that when we do things God's way, how much better things go. Or maybe something like anger. And you're like, can we start talking about sexual immorality again? Like, I'm more, No, like anger. Like we get frustrated with someone and we get angry with them and we start thinking how we could hurt them though we would never actually do it. And the day comes and the day goes and we go to bed angry. And before you know it, your relationship is severed. God says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Or what about the way we actually worship? I was praying about it this morning. I was thinking like, what are those things that we say we're trying to serve God, but we're really letting the culture influence us? And one of the things I see all of the time and why I think Eastside is so different and small is because the culture tells us that what matters most is you show up in a church on a Sunday, right? 
Like your mom calls on Mother's Day. Hey, you happy Mother's Day, Mom? Did you go to church today? Yeah, what church? I can't remember. I went to seven churches over the last 18 weeks. You know, um, but what the Bible says is when you go to church, you are part of a church. You're part of a church. That's what we invite you to be part of at Eastside, that you get plugged into a community of believers, a small group community, a community group who knows you, who can come alongside you and pray with you and watch God work in your life. And they can also watch the way that you're struggling. And they know you enough and they love you enough to say when they see you straying from God, because they, what they want for you more than anything else is what God wants for you. You don't get that when you're in one church this week and one church the next week. You get that when you belong to a community of believers. Or when we think what matters most is we just show up. The Bible would say when we don't want to be spiritual consumers, we want to be spiritual contributors, that we show up and we serve. Why? Because church isn't just about what we can get out of it. This is going to blow you away, but what, what makes church more fun is when you are part of making church possible. Because church is for you, but it's not just about you. That when we gather together, we're leading others to experience more of God. And the list could go on and on, and I could stand on a soapbox, but all of these areas are areas that we all wrestle with when we try to serve God through the, through the lens of our culture. Here's what God honors. God honors obedience. And God wants good for his people. What blows me away about Jephthah is God had already called Jephthah to do what Jephthah bartered with God to accomplish. God was going to do it. Jephthah tried to take matters into his own hand to force it some way. And when we try to do things our way, things don't go well. It might go well for a moment, but if you try to do things your way long enough, you know it just doesn't go well. The story ends this way in verse 32. So Jephthah has made a vow with God. Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood the neighborhood, I didn't, I've never noticed that, the neighborhood of Minnith, they had neighborhoods in those days, 20 cities as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with his tambourines and with dances. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. If you had questions, that's what only child means. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. So Jephthah's come home. He's experienced this great victory. The Lord has delivered the enemy into his hand, and the first person to come out of his door, his only child. And the first thing that comes to mind is I made this promise to God that I would offer as a burnt offering. I don't know, it's a foolish promise, but I promised him nonetheless. Verse 36, and she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord to do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Amorites. Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. She has um, much more uh, grace than I would. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companion. So she said, so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed. That would have been my get out. Like I'd be in another town, right? Anyone else? Like, I'm not just going to go weep and then come back. I'm gonzo. Uh, but nonetheless, two months, uh, she and her companions went for Virginia on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughter of Israel went out year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for four days in the year. Okay, bizarre story. 
This is the kind of things when you say we're going to preach through a book of the Old Testament, you got to figure out how do you preach through stories like this. And I like to look through these stories and think, man, this has nothing to do with me. I would never offer my daughters as a sacrifice. But then I realized, man, I do dumb things all the time. And I try to bargain with God. Should Jephthah, because he gave his vow, have kept his vow? No. All right, I just want to be very clear. No. God knows us. And like all those times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he describes us as a sheep. We think that's so endearing. They're so soft and cuddly. You know what God's really saying? You're my people and you're so dumb. And so he's constantly making provision for his dummies. And in the Old Testament, knowing that we would make rash vows and say things that we don't mean, he gives his people an out. Now I know it's probably not a verse you've read recently, but the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 4. He says, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, and then it goes on and on and on. Like, God gives his people an out. Jephthah could have, Jephthah knew about God. He said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the out here. I'm not going to sacrifice my daughter. I made a stupid vow. It would be sinful to carry it out, so I'm going to stop it. Jephthah doesn't do that. Why? And this is the thing that I found most convicting. Why? Because Jephthah had tried to lock himself into this, like, barter system with God, where God's, like, grace was dependent on Jephthah's actions. And like, I don't know about you, but like I grew up in church and I still struggle with this sometimes that somehow like it is based on my good behavior that God does good things. Jephthah was a scoundrel when we met him and he's a scoundrel when we leave him and God still uses him. Now I'm not encouraging us to be scoundrels, but what I want us to understand is that Jephthah should have understood that God lets us lead out of the overflow of his grace. That Jephthah, born in a difficult family situation, difficult circumstances with no skills to speak of, was chosen not because he was good, but because God called him and knew he would have faith. And Jephthah knew about God somehow and still did stupid things and made foolish decisions. And he took God's spirit for granted. He thought, God's spirit is not enough for me, that I need to do more. And God was going to accomplish good things anyway. So Here's the verse I want to leave you with, Ephesians chapter 2, then we'll land the plane. The Bible would say there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can give God. There's no one you can kill for God to earn God's favor. Paul says it much more eloquently this way in his letter to the church at Ephesus in the first century. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace, God's unmerited favor bestowed upon us, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. It is not a result of works, meaning you didn't do anything to earn it so that no one may boast. And then he goes on, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, God wants good for his people, and he wants to use his people for the good of others. But he does, he uses us, he calls us, he saves us, he sustains us, and he sends us in his grace. I want to, I really want us to think about this as we go this week, as we think about leading others. How can I lead others? Because God is gracious. Maybe I've talked through the story of Jephthah and you realize you align much more with the scoundrel side of Jephthah than the, the one who has sent. And I would like, this is the opportunity to remind ourselves of God's goodness and his grace for you. That if you've never put your faith in Jesus, for by grace you can be saved. 
You can be saved through the grace of Jesus. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. And we would love today to share more with you about how we can make that possible today. Or maybe you've read the story of Jeff and you realize, like, I kind of relate to him. I came from difficult circumstances. I was a scoundrel at some point. God saved me. I learned about who God was. His spirit dwelled inside of me. And still, somewhere along the way, I got off track. It is God's spirit that sustains us or sanctifies us. That it is his grace who is constantly at work. That his grace isn't just like an invitation to start a relationship with Jesus. It is his grace that allows us to sustain a relationship with Jesus. That no matter how far you've gotten from God, there's always an invitation back that God is drawing people to himself through the local church. And if you feel like you're just really good with God right now, it is God's grace that sends us. Jephthah was to go in the grace and power and spirit of God. God is more gracious than we can wrap our mind around, which means God's invitation to know him, to walk with him, and to serve him, to lead others, is available to you and me today, no matter where we find ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together as your people some 3,000 years after the story of Jephthah and read his story and see some of our similarities with him and see some of his silly and even selfish and sinful mistakes where he was short-sighted and realize that God, you are gracious. That 1500 years after the life of Jephthah, even knowing his faults in the book of Hebrews, you would compliment his faith. That as he fumbled his way towards you, he had faith in you. Father, I pray that today you would remind us of your grace and increase our faith. If we're here today, we've never put our faith in Jesus, God, it, it would stir something within us. Your Holy Spirit would stir something within us that Lord, you would break us until we're willing to be led closer to you. Father, if we feel like we've gotten off track, maybe the, the, the home life or the work life or the just the personal walk with you life isn't going the way we know you would want it to go for our good and for your glory, that God, we would be reminded of your grace, that we would get in a community group, that we would surround ourselves with a few faithful friends who are following after you and encourage us to do the same. And Father, for all of us, as we walk after you, as we hear your voice and follow you, that in your grace, you would send us to make a difference this week in the lives of the people you've already put in our place. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.